You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. All right, Sixers fans, recording this after a very disappointing outing for Philly in Game 5. Ended up being a 103 88 loss, 88 points in a playoff game at home with a closeout. I don't know if that's going to cut it. Before we jump into things, don't forget, subscribe to Liberty Ballers Podcast Network. You can catch us wherever you get your fix. And of course, to the gentleman behind the magic you see at Liberty Ballers joining me as they usually do on our live streams, Mr. Paul Hudrick, Jackson Frank. Paul, let's start with you. You were in the arena last night watching this debacle go on from the start. But walk me through, you're usually there pretty early. Walk me through what it was like when you first got to Wells Fargo, the fans are coming in. What was the mood like in the arena at that point? Well, it was exciting when, when that was happening. Um, the mood was great. Everyone seemed really excited for game five. Everyone kind of felt like it was going to happen. Um, and then the Sixers just didn't provide it. And it's it started early, I thought. Um, basically, as soon as the game started, Harden, James Harden had a couple pretty brutal turnovers, and that led to some 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 fast break opportunities the other way for the Raptors. I thought the difference in this in the second half of the first quarter was that Joel and B came to life a little bit, started getting some deep position. Uh, you know, they found him on a couple, you know, Harden made a couple pretty good entry passes, and he kind of got going, and that's how they chipped away and kind of got back into it. And then the second quarter happened and just it sucked the life completely out of the building. Um, they couldn't score. Flat out couldn't score. They actually they didn't take care of the basketball very well in the first quarter. They actually did in the second quarter, and they still only scored 14 points. Um, some of it is shot luck. They did have a few good looks that just, you know, after having some pretty good shot luck through four games, um, just some shots didn't fall. But overall, offensively, they were putrid, and it just it did. It sucked the life out of the building, and the fans tried to get back into it. Uh, you know, late in the game, there were a couple opportunities where the fans actually got to their feet and the Sixers allowed a lob on the other end. James Harden hits a step back. Okay, here we go. And then lob on the other end. And just, uh, I see a lot of people pointing to the defense, but to me, they couldn't score. And I thought that was a bigger issue is that it was so easy for Toronto because they kept scoring, scoring, scoring. And so Toronto was able to get back defensively every time, get set up, be prepared to defend the Sixers. And I thought that was, you know, uh, it, it was cyclical. Um, you know, I, I thought the offense being poor affected the defense. And then I think it, it's a game went on vice versa. And, you know, third quarter, Joel Embiid, I, I, don't, I don't know if he was tired. I don't know what it was. But that was the worst maybe defensive quarter I've seen out of Joel Embiid maybe ever. Um, he was really bad. And... You have to wonder if on top of the thumb issue, the weight of carrying an entire team on his back for an entire season is perhaps catching up to him a little bit. And, you know, the James Harden's ineffectiveness as a scorer. And I think that's trickled down to Tyrese Maxey. And you've seen him struggle the last three games. And 
it's just having this effect. And I, I think in all jazz, like it, it really comes down to this injury to Joel Embiid. I think it's just having a trickle down effect on the rest of the team um, emotionally, perhaps too, as, as well as just on the court and them Joel Embiid not being as effective. So that makes James Harden not as effective. That makes Tyrese Maxey not as effective. Um, and then even, even so with all that said, Paul Reed was a minus 11 while Joel Embiid was a minus four. So they got crushed in the non-Embiid minutes and they actually hung in there in the Embiid minutes. So yeah, I, I mean, just to, to kind of circle back to, to where you started, I thought there was excitement at the beginning. There was no energy through the middle. And then the crowd, the crowd was like begging for a reason to get back in the game. And the Sixers just never gave him one. Yeah, you were, you were seeing that too, that the crowd was getting on its feet at points, you know, they'd get it down to nine, eight, and then everybody was kind of anticipating, let's get a stop here. Let's, you know what I mean? Or they'd get a stop. And then we saw that Danny Green last five minutes are down by nine and, you know, Dustin, five minutes to go, gets an open three, air balls. It gets another one, goes short on that one. And the fans been so ready. good all night. And, yeah, and it, it's just in a big spot. Just I, And then that, that's been indicative of the Sixers season, obviously. Being you guys have covered the team longer than I have, but looking at, at it, it just this is part of the course. It's never easy in in, in Sixerland. Uh, Jackson, I wanted to get your opinion on this too. You're looking at the numbers from games one through three. The Raptors gave up the advantage to the Sixers in terms of rebounding. Although in game three, the 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 Toronto did get more fast break points in Philly, but those were areas that the Sixers were obviously, as we saw through games one and two. And although Joel obviously came up hugely clutch in in, in game three and overtime there. You're looking at it. Those numbers have completely flipped now. The Raptors are the ones scoring more points in the paint. The Raptors are the ones getting out and and getting some easy buckets in transition. When you're looking at this, Jackson, putting your coaching cap on, what do the Sixers have to do to try and change that back around in order to get the advantage of getting buckets inside and being able to get more more fast break points, which, again, we haven't seen much of over the last couple of outings? Yeah, I think, I think, and I don't remember exactly when this started, but one thing that we've talked about both, you know, maybe on here and you know, just internally written about it is that that James Harden, Tyrese Max two man game was great through, I think at least the first two games. And that's basically gone away because doc has shifted around the rotations again. And I, I don't, and what's, what's funny with that, because doc has a saying a lot, like it's only work. We're just going to keep running until a team can stop it. And it was working and then they stopped running it. So I don't know why that's been. And then he's he's not playing like yesterday. They had a lineup with a bunch of guys who benefit from James Harden, whether it's Paul Reed, George Niang, Tyrese Maxey all out there without Harden, Matisse as well. And so it's one of those things like these guys, like what we talked about maybe last week at this at this point when the Sixers were up 2-0 is how Doc was putting these guys and his role players in good positions. And it hasn't been the case the last couple of games. Like you can't you can't play George Niang a long stretch without Harden. You can't even play like you can't play Matisse at all really without Harden offensively. Like Obviously, Matisse isn't going to play in Game Six, but um, like I, I played anyway. <laughs> I, I, well, I'm, I'm saying yeah. If it gets back to Game Seven, God forbid, for the Sixers' sake, he shouldn't play. Like, like his, his best use is guarding Gary Trent, but Gary Trent's a great tough shot maker. Like you, you just live with Gary Trent hitting 18 footers, right? Like that's just the way it goes, and he doesn't offset his offense. And so, and especially if he's not going to play with with Harden, so. Um, that's been a big thing is like, it's not all on doc. Like the players have to be better, but he's not putting them in good positions, especially these guys who are much more limited than a Joel, even, you know, and whatnot. And so that's hurt. I think Tobias has regressed a little bit. And like, he hasn't been bad by any means, but I don't think his last two games have been as good as for a three. Now, granted, he set a very high bar for himself. You can't expect that all the time, but um, hasn't had the shots going as much. He's been called for a few more fouls Been playing really physically. The refs have cracked down on a little bit, um, you know, there. So, 
Um, but that's the biggest thing is go back to the Tyrese Maxi James Harden two man game. Run play those two together. Um, and that and they've gone away from that, and that's why you've seen this team struggle. And then also it feels like the gang rebounding has not been there as much. It felt like they were really all crashed in the glass. Um, whereas the last couple of games it just it's gone back to what we saw during the regular season where a ball goes up and they kind of just wait for it to bounce their way. Um, and so that's that's been an issue. Uh, but yeah, it's been, you know, also Toronto was really kind of dialed back having three or four guys crash the offensive glass yesterday. I mean, go watch just, I guess, I don't know, eight possessions or something. You can see that it's maybe one or two guys for Toronto crashing the offensive glass and everyone else getting back. The Sixers burned that the other strategy where they're, they're crashing three or four to get out in transition. So um, that's been a big thing. And then, you know, it, it, it ties back to the Harden thing with kind of in Doc's rotations, but They've really kind of quelled Tyrese Maxey early on. They were really, really kind of closing out all the way to run him off the arc. Now they're realizing, okay, he's 6'2", 6'1", you know, has a bit of a low release on his jumper. Let's sit back a little bit, wait for him to rip and ca- and go off the catch. And Maxey's having a little tough time to adjusting because he doesn't have quite the comfort taking that that three against a big wing. And he also doesn't have the angles to drive anymore. So um, they got to find a way to get him going. I think this is a series he can still have a big game six, but... Um, it can't just be these these things where the ball swings his way and he attacks. Like they've got to get him on the move a little more because Toronto's adjusted how they're guarding him and that release foul that was so good through two games um, has not been there as much. And and so um, that's that's the biggest thing is they just I think for whatever reason Doc's got to get back to the rotations he had. And I'm not saying that's the only like those guys got to play better, but it's easier to play better when you're they're put in good position. So that's the, that's the biggest things I would be looking for moving forward. Yeah, and if we're looking at that, Jackson, you mentioned too, like, you know, I was watching that game the last couple of games now. You're looking at Tyrese Maxey so much better when he's at least trying to get the ball in transition where he's able to push the ball up the court. Or if he's maybe the guy who gets the first pass on the wing before the defense really gets set and he's able to kind of break them down right away and not dealing with as much help, let's just say, you know, when he gets towards the paint. And I think that's been a big issue. And Jackson, you alluded to this too, that hey, this isn't completely on Doc. And I watched that game and, you know, we started seeing the memes come out like, oh, the you know, coach has a 3-1 lead and we all know what's happened there with his history. But looking at this, and this is one thing I thought of, you know, last night after watching the game is, who else does he have? You know, like you look at the at the bench guys. I mean, I think at one point they had five points off the bench. I think Paul Reed got a, a garbage time bucket. Furk had a garbage time three, which upped the numbers a little bit and it still wasn't pretty by any means when you're looking at the bench. But, you know, Paul, you're looking at this George Niang uh, so good during the regular season, provided that offense, you know, the quick catch and shoot threes that he just was was hitting at clutch moments. And, and you felt very confident when he was shooting those. Now you're looking at what he's doing in the playoffs, you know, still playing 16 minutes per night, shooting 66 percent from three. But he's getting exposed on the defensive end. Right. And you're seeing Pascal Siakam chew him up. And then Doc tried to adjust that when he had Niang on the court, went zone for a bit to try and slow the Raptors down. That didn't work. But. Again, not much, and, and you're looking at Daryl Morey, Elton Brand, and, and the front office. Like, what did you give this guy to work with? Like, if, if Shake Milton isn't on, who else is really contributing off the bench? You can't rely on Ferk. You can't rely on Isaiah Joe. Paul Reed, as we were saying, is doing a little bit more than, than what we saw from DJ and Millsap. But, Paul, when you're looking at this from your perspective and, and being around the team so much, is there anything Doc can do now with the rotations? Or are they just kind of like, they just got to find a way to gut out a win here with what they have? I have some, I mean, I definitely have concerns about the reserves. Um, I, I think Matisse Thibel at this point is unplayable. You, as Jackson already said, you can't go back to him in game seven after what we just, that was a, like, that was disastrous. And I think 
you know, they scored 14 points in the second quarter, and a big part of it was that. I mean, for like for his entire minutes on the court, their offense just it died. He got like, like five nothing. shots, which is absurd in any in a game for him. It's too much in a game. It's way too much in a six minute stint or whatever. Right, like, right. And, 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 then, and he airballed the layup. I was like, what is going on here, Matisse? Well, you can tell his got, confidence was shot, though. You right. Tell and then he got point. gun shy in the corner and had that horrible turnover where he just literally gave it right to Gary Trent. Um, missed two free throws too. I mean, that's, uh, I'll, uh, so I would say this too, like I'm not a proponent of wanting to play Furkan Korkmaz. I, I've never thought that was a good option. I, I just, I don't think he is a playoff rotational player. I just don't want, I don't think he's good enough, but if there was ever an opportunity to maybe just give him a look the second half, instead of going back to Thibault, when you weren't hitting threes, when you weren't playing particularly well, Maybe just throw him out there, see if he can hit it, bang a couple down, and just give you a little juice. Um, not saying you ride him, like you don't play him for 10 minutes, but just see what he where he's at. And if he he, he takes a couple threes, he misses them, you pull him back out. Like I, I think if there was ever a moment to do that, that might have been it. So um that you can, you know, I, I can't kill Doc for that, but maybe that would have been one moment. And Doc has alluded to, like, oh well, we could still play Ferk, like that could still be a guy. Like if you aren't going to play him then, then I don't know. You can't play him in six or seven, I think, at this point. I think that's out the window. And I think, you know, Shake Milton, I thought this was the first game where I really looked at Shake, and I'm like, man, he looks pretty overmatched here. He, he did not look good last night. I thought with the ball in his hands, he really struggled. And I thought, I like, he hasn't clearly hasn't set the world on fire through the first four games, but I thought he looked okay. He looked like he was – he looked didn't look out of place. Last night, I thought he did. I, I thought he looked out of place – you already talked about Niang defensively. It's going to continue to be a struggle because 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 Toronto is so long and so athletic, and it's going to keep giving him problems. If they don't put Siakam on him, Siakam's going to hunt him. Like they're going to try to find him in switches, and they're going to try to get that matchup all day. Um, and the Sixers, I, I fear, aren't good enough fighting through screens, especially with the lineups we just talked about. When you don't have elite defenders out there, like that, that's a problem. Uh, so. Yeah, I think there's there's plenty of blame to go around, uh, whether it's on Doc Rivers, whether it's on the players, whether it's on the front office for not, you know, using four roster spots on backup centers and maybe none of them being a good enough option and then still not having good enough wing depth. Um, so so that falls on the front office as well. But I think I hate to say it, but like I think it all really does come back to Joel Embiid not being himself, it just trickles down. It trickles down with everything they do. And I think another thing that if I could, you know, to criticize Doc a little bit, he said pregame last night, you know, he was asked, do you do anything different with Joel now that he's hurt? And he said, no, I use him the same way. And it's like, well, maybe you shouldn't because I don't think he's the same guy right now. So um, whether that changes in game six where maybe he can look more like himself, I've seen – I think it was Matt Mullen in the Inquirer had a piece where he talked to the doctors and a physical therapist where they said, actually, if you tear your UCL, the first few days after are the hardest because that's where you experience the most pain. So once you kind of clear that hurdle, functionality-wise, it is what it is. You're still going to have issues, but pain-wise, you can kind of overcome it after that. So we'll see if maybe that happens. And even Doc actually said that pregame that he dealt with the UCL as a player and had to play a playoff series with it. And after a couple of games, you just kind of start the pain. You're kind of numb to it. But 
it still does affect you passing, especially the most. So, but I just do. I think everything, like, there was a lot of talk about, oh, can James Harden, can they, can he just be a point guard, um, you know, or are they going to need him to score? Well, when Joel Embiid looked like the best player on the planet, yeah, James Harden could be a point guard. But now that he doesn't, James Harden has actually looked worse in that regard. As both a playmaker, he hasn't really done well as a playmaker in the last couple games. And he hasn't, he the whole series, he really hasn't been that successful as a scorer. So there's more on him. And I don't think that James Harden can handle it either. It's it, Clearly, I think that hamstring is still a pretty significant issue, even though he's going to deny it. The fact that he only took 11 shots last night, when again, they really needed him to take more and be more aggressive. And you could see it in his play. Like there are times where you're like, man, like he, he, it feels like he could have maybe gone all the way to the basket or it feels like he could have taken this three and he's passing and he's deferring. And even James, if he is not 100% with that hamstring, I think he still needs to try to be aggressive because I, I, I think him playing this way is hurting them, whether he's healthy or not. Um, so, And then I think, again, that falls down to Tyrese Maxey and I think that's hurting him a little bit. And then I think, as you touched on Jackson, Tobias Harris last couple of games hasn't been as efficient, hasn't been as good on the offensive end. And I think that's, I think when you're so reliant on a player, the way the Sixers have been all season long on Joel Embiid, and we see what's happening in Denver, when you're so reliant on one player to be so great every single night, when he can't be that, when he's not that, it just it, the whole team. It's a domino thing. Like the whole, it just all collapses, and I think that's a big part of the issue. So, like, I hate to say it, but I think Joel Embiid, he needs to be special in Game Six, and I think it's like otherwise we're coming back for Game Seven. Like, I, I don't know that he can be either. So the Sixers are just in. It's a really difficult spot, and I, I, I it, it, we started. Off, I started off this by talking about the bench, but I think it it, it starts from Joel Embiid. And it trickles all the way down to, to the last guy on the bench, to the coach, to the front office, everybody. And yeah, if but- I could, if I could just play off the Harden point specifically, I think the issue is when he was in his like his peak, when he was the MVP caliber guy, you know, doing his thing, he what he he was still the same kind of off ball player where he was hesitant to take catch and shoot threes and all these things, but it was generally okay because he get a he could create a shot for himself whenever he wanted on the ball. Now that he's much more limited with the ball in his hands, I'm not saying he can't do anything, but like he doesn't have the same like bandwidth to just pass up those shots. They're not going to come as easily when the when the ball's in his hands. So when he miss when he t- doesn't take that catch and shoot three, or he passes out of the floater on a drive, he can't just get the ball back and get into it mean, and drive to the rim, pass his man, or like take a step back through that's comfortably open. So it just it kind of coalesces into this thing where like you know he can't he he can, he takes three fewer shots off the ball, but he can't replace them on the ball. It's now it's six fewer shots. So like it's it's a huge thing. So. That, that's the biggest issue. And there were a couple of plays that I noted yesterday, like you said, Paul, where he passes up a catch and shoot three and they get something else that's bad, or he, he drives the lane and tries to kick out instead. And with, when there's a floater, the floater hasn't been there this year either. That was a big thing he added the last few years. He just hasn't, hasn't had the same rhythm. The floater is very much a rhythmic shot, it feels like. I mean, all shots are rhythmic, but especially that one with the footwork and the release on it. So um, there's a lot of issues with Harden. And uh, I think they're all ones that you, you, you should have been able to at least foresee to some degree with him this year. But um, he's just not that level of score this year, and it, it's gonna. Re- it's he just hasn't adapted, and I think that's that's a huge issue for this team. Actually, real yeah. quick, so Jackson, because I I know I remember you wrote about the fact that you felt like he should be incorporating the floater more. Do you think? 
and I get like I get it's really hard to adjust when you've been one of the most dominant offensive players ever doing what you've done to then have to adjust to one not getting calls that you used to get um and two like I, I sort of wonder I get the Mori ball thing where it's threes or it's shots at the rim nothing in between like that that's just the way he got in his brain and it again it worked so well for him for so long but do you think there's room for him to incorporate something else like you said the floater but like maybe a mid-range shot here and there maybe just pulling up from like five feet and hit like there was a play in game four I think it was where he pulled up like five feet from the basket and just hit like a little fadeaway and it's like okay like you can do that like you're a pretty good and like you like kind of what you touched on before that trying to do that is better than one trying to grift and knowing you're not going to get the call or two passing out of it and then the team getting a worse shot so do you think I think it's probably too late now for him to try to do that. And I think he's kind of stuck in his ways, but do you think going forward that that's something that maybe he should incorporate more, a little bit more of a mid range or just a little bit more of like a pull-up game? Yeah. And I think, I think the, the, the problem, you know, with the floor specifically is I understand why he's been a little less willing to take this year because it hasn't felt like it's a, I think this year it's like a 42% shot or something for him. And that's just not very good like inside the arc. Um, but you saw a little step, mid-range step back yesterday early in the game. He's done that a little more, I feel like, as he's gone on with the Sixers. That's a shot, honestly, like I wouldn't be surprised if that's much more in his arsenal next year, whether, you know, you know, assuming you know, if he's with the Sixers or, or wherever else he is, I think we'll see that more. Um, but yeah, I think moving forward for sure, like just like I, because my, my written, this is very much an amateur's, you know, viewpoint is that part of the reason the jumper from deep hasn't been there as much is because, it does rely on a lot of like lower body torque, a lot of which comes from the hamstring. And if, you know, if that hamstring isn't where it was a year ago or two years ago, it's tougher to kind of cleanly get that separation. But maybe if you don't need as much torque from say 12 feet rather than 27 feet, you still have that, that good rhythm on that jumper. Like the mechanics on his upper body and this jumper look the exact same as far as I can tell. So yeah, I think that's definitely something you should try and incorporate moving forward, Paul, to just continue to be an all-star level player, which I think, you know, he still was roughly this year, but, um, you know, he can, I think there's still a way for him to get back to the All-NBA caliber. He's not, not the MVP level. And so, yeah, I think, like I said, that mid-range step back that we've seen a little bit this year would definitely be a way to get there. And just if the floater comes back to where it was the last few years, where it's you know, very much a reliable shot rather than an okay shot, then that would help for sure as well. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, we've seen throughout the 82-game regular season, although Harden only played in 21 with the Sixers, the recipe is there. If Joel putting up 30, they need Tobias Harris, James Harden, or Tyrese Maxey to have 25, and then they'll have a shot at winning. And we haven't seen those guys step up offensively. You look at Harden, uh, his his shot totals right now, not nearly as good, especially over the last two games. Made nine of his last 28 field goal attempts, four, 14 from deep, and, and they need him to, to get going. And I this is probably jumping the gun a bit here, Paul, but let's say even if the Sixers do pull this series off and this is the production you're getting from Harden, is he a guy you want to look at signing for five years at 260, roughly? I mean, I know he can opt into his own, but then the extension eligible, I think it's uh, four years at, what, 233 or, or something around that range. Like, you, you're looking at this. Is that, like, the, the Sixers put all their eggs in this basket, and they were looking at the superstar, and we were all very excited the day of. I remember the three of us did this when we found out that the trade was made and, and talked about what this what this means for Philly moving forward, although now looking back at it, like, damn, we were praising the fact that they were able to save Matisse and, and, and were able to attach Seth. You almost look like if they flip-flop that, 
that this might be a whole different team that we're looking at here. And I don't know if I was. Wanna... Yeah, yeah, yeah. You said that. Not, you, you mentioned know, you that. Very, obviously... You were very concerned about. I do remember that. You were. You Which, were very concerned about that. I understand maybe why Brooklyn didn't want Matisse, given what we've learned in the last that too. two weeks. Maybe it's understandable why there was some haggling on their end. Yeah, it, I mean, we're seeing it now. And then, like you guys mentioned earlier, Matisse just looked like a deer in the headlights after he missed a couple of shots, and then it was over. Like his confidence was gone. But all right, fellas, want to jump into a couple more topics? Let's do that after a short break. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Paul, again, going back to being there last night, going to the post game, um, you know, media availabilities, talking with Doc and having to stick around for 45 minutes waiting for Joel. You know what I'm talking about there. But um, you're looking at this. What was the mood like around the team? Like, did you did you get this sense of, oh, man, like we're in it now or were they still kind of calm and cool? Which, again, when you're at the NBA arenas, you get a feel for that from any team. It felt like a wake. <laughs> um. <laughs> I hate to be like brutally honest, but that's how it felt. Like they were down. Um, to Doc's credit, I didn't think Doc was down. I actually thought Doc probably instilled, which is scary to say, given everything. But like, I feel like Doc instilled more confidence than anyone else that talked. Um, Tobias seemed actually like a pretty good, like in a pretty good place, and I, I respect that Tobias kind of called everybody out because. Um, while I, I I agree he he's he struggled the last two games. Um, he still brought it. You know what I mean? Like he still had that fire. Like compared yeah. to some other guys on the yeah. team, like he's clearly still like he's been the only guy that I think through five games has played his ass off. Like I, for lack of a better term, like I think he has really played his ass off for five games. He's been their most uh, reliable guy through five I think, games. I think the way I would phrase it is his, his approach has been the same every game and hasn't that's a good way it hasn't borne the same results, but like he still had some really impressive drives yesterday, some good sequences defensively. Like the shots didn't fall as often, but the approach has been there every game, which I think is right kind of what you want, right? It's, you can't you can't control the results, but you can always control the the approach. And that's what Tobias has done well. For sure. And I, I think given that, I think he he had the right to call the call guys out and say like we weren't good enough. We didn't bring the fight tonight. And 
Um, I'm glad he did. I think that was I think that was the right message uh, to send to the rest of the team. I think that's a, a good thing to put out there. Um, but yeah, everybody like you talk like Harden seemed pretty down, which that's not really like him since I in, in my interactions with him. Not that I've had too many, but um, he doesn't see he seems that the kind of guy is like, it's all right. Like, we'll figure it out like that. That's kind of always been his thing. Like, I work hard. The work's going to show up and it's going to. But last night he seemed pretty down. Uh, Joel Embiid, he had that one weird quote about Harden that I I don't want to blow. I didn't tweet it out because I didn't want people to, because this is what Twitter does. They see one friggin' sentence of a quote and lose their minds. So I didn't think it was worth it for me to send it out. But it, admittedly, it was a little it was a little bit of a weird quote where he said that, you know, I, I just tell James to be aggressive and it's on Doc to tell him to be more aggressive. I thought that was like a little strange, but I don't think, I don't think it was necessarily coming from a bad place uh, i think he just i think he wants james to be more aggressive and i think james because of his health maybe thinks thinks he's doing he's thinks what he's doing is is better for the team than trying to do too much and, and to try to you know overexert himself and then not be able to deliver but i kind of tend to agree with Joel. i think be aggressive james and, and like i can live with the results right like i can live mm -hmm. with if you take 20 shots and you only make five of them. I prefer that than you only taking 11. I mean, at least from my perspective, that's how I look at it with James Harden. Like take the yeah. shots because it's better than a turnover and it's better than, you know, Danny green trying to drive the ball with five seconds left on the shot clock. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's a much more favorable outcome to me to have, G G to have James Harden be super inefficient than anything else. Like I'll live and die with that. I can, I can do that. So the way I just wanted the way I, I I didn't hear the quote, but the way I interpreted it was Joel has talked about that at times throughout James Harden's tenure since the yes. Sixers have a loss and he struggles a little bit. The way I kind of interpreted it was he was like, look, I've I've talked about this. I've talked about it publicly, privately with James. All I can do is encourage him to be aggressive. I'm not calling plays. Like if like if Doc wants to find right. a way to like scheme better situations for James, then he should do that. It's like it just felt like a little bit of exasperation. Like, look, you guys keep asking me about this and I get it. But like Definitely. all I can do is encourage him. I can't call the plays for him. I, that's not my job. So that's how I read. I don't know if that was the case in terms of the tone, but just reading the quote yesterday, um, that's how I interpreted it. Not no, to I, just, I, not say that he's free of blame or not to say Joel's like you know. It, I don't know. I don't want to like get into that part of it. But I just read sure. it as like that's that was my interpretation, which could no, be exasperation. Right I think is a good way to look at it. Is that yeah? He's he's been asked about that a ton, and and not only that, you just lost. You got your ass kicked. Like, and you keep getting asked a similar question, and it's like. Yeah, like I get it. Um, I think sometimes we all, not all of us, but I think some of us have a tendency to forget that these guys are human. Um, they just came off a really tough loss. Joel's dealing with a pretty serious injury that he's trying to play through. He knows he didn't play well. He called, he was, he had no problem taking responsibility for himself. He said he was terrible in the third quarter defensively. He doesn't, he has no excuse for it. Needs to move his feet better. Needs to play with more energy. So like, and, and that's what I think, and it's funny because like looking back on the Ben Simmons thing, I think that's the part that gets lost in his quote from that is that he threw himself under the bus too. Like he took responsibility there. And I think quite frankly, that's what a good leader does, right? Like they're not afraid to call people out, but they're also, they don't shy away from criticism to themselves and they're not afraid to criticize themselves. And I think that's where Joel has really grown this year as a leader. Um, you know, he, he takes the responsibility, but he's also not afraid to say, hey, I, we need more from this person or, you know, we need James to be more aggressive. Like, he's not afraid to do that. And I think that's not a bad thing. Um, and, and I don't think James Harden is going to, like, secretly be upset about that. Like, I, I, I think they're I think since they since James has gotten here, 
they've been pretty like their communication has been good. They've been on the same page. Like I, I I'm not really overly concerned about that. But but yeah, just to get back to like the overall tone, it was just it, they did not instill a lot of confidence in you. Um, gr- again, granted, it, it was after a really brutal loss, and they know that, and I think they all felt it. So you know, maybe in a weird way, having those two days off is is good because today that I you know I know they're not doing any media availability. I think they were just doing some light film session. So maybe like the chance to get away from a little bit might be good for the day. And then tomorrow they come back and practice. So maybe that's, that's better for them going into Thursday night. Um, Doc had an interesting quote where he said he felt like maybe that Toronto crowd being so fired up and being so angry and intense that he thinks that might be able to help them. Like that might jumpstart them a little bit and get them into it from the opening tip. Um, We'll see. Uh, I, yeah, I don't know either. I, I understand it, but as we talked about earlier, we, we just saw a, a crowd that was trying to will its team to to get back in competitiveness, and that didn't work either. But I mean, yeah, I get what Doc's trying to do, but I, I and there is well, listen too. I, I think <laughs> I think what Doc was getting at too is that there was a weird tenseness at home last year in the playoffs. Game five against Atlanta. Game seven against Atlanta. There was a, a very tense, odd feeling in that building. So maybe getting away from that. And um, trying to silence a hostile crowd in a weird way, I, and I—that's not the first time I've heard something like that. Where like a coach almost feels like his team would be better in a road situation because of that, because like the home crowd can be tough, and you're just uh, like if there I, were I ever time for the Sixers to to tap into that good road record this year, <laughs> this, this would be this would be, be it. I agree, I agree. Um, but yeah, uh, and so. You know, I, I don't want to put too much stock into everything after the post game, but um, yeah, it, they there was not a, a lot of confidence brimming from from the team last night. Jackson, you're looking at this from the from the offensive standpoint, and I was watching you know watching that game yesterday. Couldn't get into the paint, even even you know the 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 motion and and the actual action of of most of the of the set wasn't occurring till those 14 15 left on the shot clock and a lot of the times you were seeing the guys on the weak side off ball no movement whatsoever we saw this a lot during the regular season especially during losses that the three guys who aren't maybe on the pick and roll you're not getting any backdoor cuts weak side screens nothing like that when you're looking at this and Paul you specifically mentioned Joel and and of course we don't know how much the injury is affecting him uh, clearly, you know, it is an issue. And, and you look at the uh, at the seriousness of, of what he's dealing with. But when you're, you're looking at this from the offensive standpoint, and especially from from Doc's perspective, what else can the Sixers do to try and at least get some open looks? Because, again, shooting the three ball, they've been OK in this series. They haven't been terrible. They haven't been great, you know, lights out or anything like that. But they're starting to get some open looks. But it comes to getting those easy buckets. Is there anything else you look at from from your from a technical standpoint that the Sixers can be doing on the offensive end to at least get some more easier looks, getting to the free throw line a little bit more that will enable them to put up more than 88 points, which feels like it's like a 1990 score. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you know, I don't want to just, you know, regurgitate what Paul said, but a lot of it just, it comes down to Joel. Like it just, if, if his thumb isn't in a place where he feels comfortable initiating a bunch of dribble handoffs, dribbling from the top of the key and the in those face ups and, you know, and things like that and, and attacking the offensive class. Like, I, I, don't, I don't, the only real counter I think that we saw a little bit late in the fourth quarter, even before the Sixers pulled the plug was putting Tyrese on the ball more and Tyrese, you know, that works because Tyrese has such great speed and it's given Toronto issue, big issues at times, but there's limitations to that because Tyrese, you know, isn't a great passer yet. Like he's, you saw, you've seen growth since he became a Sixer two years ago, but 
you know, he's not hard and where like he gets downhill and you basically every re- most reads are available to him. There's certain things he can do, certain things he can't. And if like in if you put back Maxi on the ball, then you have Harden off of it. And we've talked about where Harden struggles in that that realm. So um, it just comes down to Joel a lot. And I, I don't know. I can't predict that because I don't know how his thumb's going to feel. But um, you've just seen on both ends, like he's less active playing the passing lanes and deterring lobs offensively. Like he's, he's way too many plays in game game four where his hands are at his side and things like that. And I understand it. Like I, he doesn't want to expose his thumb. I totally get it. But like their defense needs him to be the guy he was in game three. And their offense seems to be a guy who can run stuff from the face up. He can cut. He can dribble handoffs. He can, he can, you know, he can roll the rim. And he just like, I mean, I, I would have to go back and look at, you know, his touches from the last two games. But it feels like the most successful ones have just been those deep seals, which I get. I mean, there's that's something you should tap into still, but it can't be the you can't be the entirety of the offense. And so, I, I don't know what the answer is if Joel isn't, you know, it's, it basically can Maxi have a great game, and if he can't. And can like can Harden figure? It's, it's like if Joel isn't good enough, then it comes down to the two guards, and they could play well, they could do their thing. Um, but if Joel is good enough, then you just do run things through him. And otherwise, I don't, I don't have a great answer. But it, so it just all stems from how, whatever, like what capacity can, what usage can Joel handle? Um, and so that's that's where we'll go. But I don't, you know, I'm not Joel some, I'm not Joel, so I don't, I don't have any insight there. Um, but as Paul said, yeah, I mean, the, the two days in between is nice. It'll be, it'll have been. Eight. It'll be eight days, right? Since last Wednesday, when he when he first suffered the injury, rather it's only been it's only been four or three or five or whatever the last couple of games. So um, maybe kind of fully acclimated. I'm sure they'll get a practice in maybe tomorrow since they have two days off. They are um, doing our practice tomorrow. Yeah. yeah. So fully acclimating, you know, getting an actual day to do some stuff would help. But yeah, it just all comes down to that, and you know, whatever he can do is going to shape their game plan or what, what he can't do. I should say as well. And it's kind of unfortunate because we thought once they got hardened that the onus wouldn't be all on Joel. And here we are now in the first round of the playoffs saying it is all about Joel and beat. If he can't put up 35 and get 15 rebounds, we know this team is going to have trouble scoring. So again, nothing you could do about it. Now you got, you got the guys you got Paul looking at this going into game six. I'm pretty sure the fans in Toronto are going to be going crazy, but the pressure aspect of it all, looking at this from a sixer standpoint, you played against a team who, and you finish within what a couple of games, two two games of, of the top spot in the conference, you know, behind Miami. But you're playing against a squad that has Pascal Siakam missing an All Star and Fred VanVleet, who's dealing with a, a strained hip flexor. Day to day at this point, don't know if, if he has any chance of not likely not going to play Game Six. I, I don't know if he'll be able to go in Game Seven on Saturday if we get there. Uh, but you're looking at this like there was no excuse for the Sixers to come out that way. I think that we've we've established that. But from the other angle of it, you're up three nothing. You have an MVP candidate. We saw how much people were slandering Nikola Jokic throughout the playoffs. I mean, this team's still down three one, uh, still in it. But looking at this from that, how important is it? Do you think the Sixers finish this thing off on Thursday? Because if you're coming back for Game Seven, obviously you have the memories of last season losing to an underdog Atlanta team when you were the one seed, and you're up three nothing. The collar is going to get a little bit tighter if you go into game seven. So when you're looking at this, is this a kitchen sink game for, for the Sixers at this point, playing against a Raptor squad that really is just playing with house money at this point? Because if they lose, they're going to be like, well, hey, we at least we made it. You know, we didn't give up, won a couple of games. And if they get to a game seven, they're going to be like, dude, we're going to be the first team in what, 143 to do this. Yeah, I mean, they, they, you have to play it as if it's game seven already. Like you, you 100% have to do that. You, you don't want to come back to Philadelphia. Um, at, like... And I, I do sort of wonder, and it, look, this is me speculating. I don't know. I don't know the extent of Joel Embiid's 
thumb, how he's feeling, what's going on in his head. I really don't. But I sort of wonder if he thought maybe, and and Jackson, some of the things you kind of alluded to with him offensively and some of the things he, he's doing and not doing, I sort of wonder if he thought he could maybe take not, I don't want to say not give 100%, because that's not the way I'm looking, but like maybe he felt like someone else could step up and then he didn't have to fully exert himself, didn't have to fully expose his thumb and didn't have, you know what I mean? And, and maybe, you know, maybe James Harden could step up, maybe Tyrese Maxey, maybe Tobias, someone could come through and then he wouldn't have to put everything on him. He, he wouldn't have to be the, the, the MVP. He, he, would, he could just play a role and play a big role, but, but maybe not be that guy and put the team on his shoulders. Um, and then now maybe in game six, he, he, you know, he saw what happened in game five and he thinks to himself, you know what? Uh, I think maybe we're going to have, he's going to have to be Superman again. He's going to have to put the cape on and he's going to have to be that guy. Um, and just, you know, and again, it's kind of similar to Harden, right? Where it's, I know the thumb is there and it's an injury and maybe he's deferring because of it. But now it's like, just live with the results, man. Like if you <laughs> take 25 shots with, with your bad thumb and, and the Sixers are going to have to live with it. And I think that's kind of where we are with both guys. I think both guys just have to be aggressive. Both guys have to go all out and play it. Like it's a game seven and just let the chips fall where they may. I, I think that's where they have. And, and I think, that's the way like you want to go down with your best players playing the biggest roles. So if they're both not hundred percent healthy, just give me everything you have for this game. And if it doesn't work, if you're not effective, we live with it. You know what I mean? Like if you're not healthy, then we live with it. Um, because I also think too, again, it's, it, 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 it trickles down to the other guys. It, at least if Joel Embiid, if he goes, I don't like if he goes eight for 20 or whatever, eight for 25 or whatever he goes. Um, maybe that aggressiveness still helps Tyrese Maxey find some more open looks. Maybe it helps Tobias Harris find Danny green. Like it, it, maybe though those two guys taking a ton of shots, but maybe not being as efficient just opens up the offense for everyone else because the Raptors have to pay attention to them because they're being so aggressive. So I think 100% Doc Rivers has to coach it. Like it's a game seven. They got to play like it's a game seven. You can't mess around with. I think you gotta like you're, you're playing eight guys. The only guys off the bench should be Niang, Milton, and Paul Reed. Uh, you can't extend it out, out to Furcon. You just can't do it at this point. You have to try to play as much as you can. And I get the idea that like if you play it like a game seven and then you lose and you have to play a real game seven, I, I get how that hurts. But you, you've had two opportunities to close it out playing kind of not your best basketball. Like you need to play your best basketball right now. Um, and, and I think it, it's some of the other issues we talked about. They have to take care of the basketball. Like that is like first and foremost, you cannot turn the ball over. Um, so it, it, yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely, you have to put you push all your chips to the middle and just, and just, and, and, and cause if you come back to Philadelphia, like you already said, jazz, everyone remembers game seven. Everyone remembers game five last year you don't want to come into the building with that tense feeling like leave it all out there in Toronto. Um, because if you have to come back to Philadelphia, it's going to be a, a, a tense, awkward envir environment anyway. So just go all out while you're in Toronto. 
Oh, I, I'm with you. And, and and the funny part is, like we've said, you know, Doc has his shortcomings. But I don't think this series is on him. I, I, the players deserve some of the blame for how they're performing as well. But man, can you imagine what's going to be coming out on social media and the internet? And if, if I mean, and I'm not saying it's over yet, because I still think uh, my honest prediction, I still think the Sixers win on Thursday. I think it's going to be a hell of a game, but I do think they do. But if they end up choking this series away, I, I don't know if Doc gets another job at any point in the NBA. It's back to back to the booth. I was going to say, maybe, maybe don't tell Doc to coach it like a game to it. Maybe more like a game. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's a really good point. <laughs> that is, that is true. Well, we'll, uh, we'll coach, coach it like, coach it like game one. Yeah, coach it yeah. yeah, like game one. There you go. <laughs> good point. Uh, you know, Players when play like game seven, but but Doc, coach yeah. Like yeah, coach, yeah. yeah, have the Fair desperation point. of game seven, but just treat it like a game one. <laughs> yeah, um, we'll kind of start winding things down here, fellas. Just looking around the rest of the NBA, Jackson, so impressive what the Boston Celtics did to to the Nets. I mean, we talked about how good Boston has been basically since Christmas and the turn in, in into the new year. But looking at at this now. Because I thought this too. I'm like, that's what championship teams do, right? Yeah, they have Kevin Durant. Yeah, they have Kyrie Irving. Sure, they've had a ton of issues in terms of the chemistry and 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 the lack of cohesion with with everything that went on. Well, there's a way to solve that, huh? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I'm, I'm with you on that. But I mean, looking at this now, when you look around the NBA and, and considering what Milwaukee has done, Grayson Allen stepped up with you know Chris Middleton being out, and they're beaten again. I don't think anybody thought Chicago was going to beat Milwaukee, but didn't think they'd be able to kill them like that without Middleton. But you're looking around the rest of the NBA, Jackson. What which couple of teams are sticking out to you? As in right now, going into round two, those are going to be the teams to beat going forward. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, off the bat for me, it's got to be Boston and Golden State. I know that. Both those teams are playing, you know, opponents that have been a little bit shorthanded, you know, whether it's Denver down a couple of important players um, or, you know, the Celtics down Joe Harris and Ben Simmons. Obviously, the Celtics played, well, I mean, both most that series that Robert Williams is limited role the last couple of games. But I think you got to look there. And then obviously Milwaukee, you know, the, you know, as, as you said, Jazz, like, yeah, they didn't look very good through two games, but they have totally flipped the switch the last couple. Um, looked great. Just the way they've adjusted their coverage on DeMar DeRozan, the way they're really kind of taking away the paint for drive by Zach Levine. Um, and they're obviously a limited team as well. Like you said, down loans the ball and Alex Russo's out. Zach Levine entered health and safety protocols today as well, unfortunately. Um, so, but I think that's the kind of the three teams to me that have been the most impressive in terms of ones that I view as title contenders. Obviously most impressive. You could, you know, you can give a shout out to the New Orleans Pelicans, things like that. But, you know, unless Zion's walking through, walking through that door to suit up this year, they're probably not going to win the title. Um, he could do yeah, windmill those... dunks. He could do windmill dunks, but he can't play an NBA game. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, who knows? But, um, but yeah, I just think with with the way that you know Devin Booker's timeline is kind of murky. Chris Paul didn't look very good in the second half. Um, it's tough, to, you know. And the Suns could certainly still win. I'm not saying they're wise, but like just based off the first round, which isn't the only thing you should ever base you know your analysis off of. But just off the first round, you have to think: can I give the give the edge to the Celtics and the Warriors and then the Bucks so far? Um, but we'll see. I think as you know, just just the way that the Celtics have been able, like the way that they've been able to just keep the Nets at bay, especially the last two games on the road, like. Those games were close, but every time the, the Nets cut it to one or they had a 7-0 run to cut the lead to three, there was a, a, a drive and a cut and a pass and a finish or a, a big three or a pick and roll that produced points. They just always kind of kept them at bay. And that's it, sound, it sounds cliche, but like just to never let the Nets actually get ahead, I think there is some sort of mental you know, fortitude in that and just some resilience, and that's important. So I never want to overstate the intangible, just the way that they always kind of had an answer for Brooklyn despite – you know, Brooklyn having some explosive players, whether it's the Kyrie, the KDs, and, you know, Seth Curry can get hot, as we know. Bruce Brown can do some things on the short roll and with that float game. But, um, yeah, just really impressive from Boston. And, you know, I think you have to be, you know, like, I mean, I still think Brooklyn's a really good team, or I guess was a good team <laughs> this year, I should say. Um, 
but just the way Boston was able to, I mean, you win it, you sweep a team, you're better. Like that's just, that's just the way it is. And the way they were able to do that, despite, I think the margin of error, margin of victory was like 15 combined points, but just like, that's, that's impressive to win those, those four games like that, especially with the way KD went off in game four, Kyrie went off in game one. I think you got to give a lot of credit to Boston. And, you know, right now I think they would maybe be the pick to come out of the East, but you know, every, every, the playoffs are so match dependent. They never, don't never want to overstate things, but um, we'll certainly see. And I think, you know, Milwaukee, Boston could be great. Maybe it's Chicago, Boston, who knows, but mo- most likely Milwaukee, Boston. We know it's not going to be Chicago. Come well, on, Jackson. Don't be politically, yeah, correct. Yeah, don't be politically correct there. Yeah. Yeah. Le- one's only three one. I want to give them their, their chance. <laughs> yeah, I think Milwaukee, Boston will be a great series for sure. Uh, you know, like you mentioned there, Jackson, you're, you're talking about the teams who, you know, just better if they sweep them. We all thought that last Wednesday night. We're like, hey, man, the, the Sixers are just a better team. They're going to pull this off. And now look where we're standing. But uh, we'll wrap up on this. Paul, what's your prediction for game six? I've already stated I, I don't get me wrong. If I had 50 bucks so to bet on like FanDuel, I wouldn't do it. But yes, we're going to wrap up on this. <laughs> Paul Hendrick, who do you got game six between the Sixers and the Raptors? Uh, part of me wants to pick the Raptors because I picked the Sixers to win four and five and they lost both. Uh, well then do it. Yeah, there you go. No, uh, <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, I do think the Sixers pull it out because like, I think I, you know, I, it's just a hunch on my part, but I felt like Joel was maybe holding back a little bit the last two games. And I think this game, he's going to kind of take the gloves off. And I, I, I think he's not going like, he can't be the, that guy. Like he's, he's ne- like, he, he, can't be the MVP guy necessarily. Like he's not going to be the guy he was in game three and just completely take it over. But I think there is a more effective version of him uh, that he's capable of being. And I think he is that in game in game six. And I think again, it'll just every, it'll help everyone else out on the court, him being a little bit more aggressive, him being, you know, if, if I would say he's maybe been 60% of himself over the last two games, if he could be like 75, 80, um, that's, that would help, I think, tremendously. I expect him to be significantly better defensively. I think his pride, I think he was, I think he was mad at himself for how poor he was defensively in game five. So I imagine he's going to be much, much better on that end of the floor in, in game six. So I think that's a big factor. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think Joel Embiid just being closer to Joel Embiid will happen in game six, and I think that will lift the team enough um, for them to to finally uh, put an end to the series. Jackson, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, like Paul, we or I guess Jazz and I, we recorded, you know, after Saturday, and I said the Sixers are going to win on Monday. I was That was wrong. But I did say that when we did, when we previewed pre- pre- this year, I had the Sixers in six. So I'm going to stick with that. I'm going to, I'm going to stay there. And I, I, I said agree six with Paul. seven. So maybe I'll be right. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Maybe eventually you'll be right here. <laughs> One and four would be correct eventually. Um, but yeah, I just, I think like to Paul's point, if he's just the all NBA version of himself, the guy that we saw before last season, you know, who's a superstar rather than, you know, arguably the greatest, you know, best player in the NBA, they win. And I think, you know, part of what was, and Joel was not perfect in last year's second round loss, but he went like he went, and I hate I don't want to be clear, but he went down swinging. You know, like he he tried to create like he had a bunch of turnovers those aren't great, but like he was trying to create. You know, Tobias and Ben were limited, so like he was doing his thing. I just I just, just having covered Joel for like half a decade now, I just can't see him playing so passively for four straight games. I just can't. I think if he and I'm not saying that he's gonna like he's gonna be great. Him just being more aggressive doesn't mean the shots are gonna automatically go in. But I just I've covered him long enough. I'm not saying like I know him personally or anything like that. But like just the, his play style is not 
this is not his play style. It's just, so I just think we're going to get a more aggressive version and I think it's going to be a better version for everyone. And so that's where I'll go. And I think, you know, I just, I just think they'll shoot better as well. Like as Paul, we said earlier, like, yeah, the, the offense was not good, but like, man, did they miss a lot of shots that were like good looks. Like they weren't perfect. The, Ra- the Raptors process was much more encouraging, but they didn't miss a lot of good looks. That's what I mean. You mentioned Danny Green jazz earlier, but like Danny, Danny was the only thing that kept him afloat for a long stretch. So I just, I just think, you know, as we've said, and I, I don't ever want to be like, you just like, like chop up to that. But I just, I just think that Joel is going to be better and that's going to have a huge impact because, you know, Joel is just not a passive player at his core from the guy that I've watched. And I just, I think that's who he's been the last couple of games. And I think he's going to, he's realized that and he's frustrated and it's going to, you know, help the entire team, even if it doesn't, you know, even if it doesn't mean he's great. I think just him being a bigger presence will be better than what he's been the last couple of games. And I expect that to be the case in the Sixers win it. So they win a close one. I won't give you any final score. I think I said 118, 106 yeah. in terms of yeah, six in the last right. game, which yeah. was about 30 points fewer more than they scored. <laughs> I won't give you a score prediction this time, but I will say they win, which could could look bad again, but we shall see. Well, well, I mean, that's what we're here to do. And and I want to thank you guys for joining me. As always, it's it's a big one on Thursday. I mean, this is what the playoffs are all about. So don't forget, before we do wrap things up, subscribe to us at the Liberty Ballers Podcast Network. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, you name it, we are there. And of course, Paul Jackson. Sean Kennedy, Steve Lippman, a ton of different writers. We have you covered at libertyballers.com as well. Support for this show comes from Fundrise. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting Fundrise.com Fox. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at Fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Support for this show comes from Wix Studio. Designers and devs, you might be able to do your thing better on Wix Studio, a web platform with everything you need to deliver bespoke sites hyper-efficiently. Design teams get a ton of smart features that can take the grind out of web creation without it costing per-pixel control. Dev teams, you get a zero-setup, developer-first environment combined with an AI code assistant and your preferred IDE for rapid deployment. Search Wix Studio today to explore the full range of features.